0: Hello and welcome to Little Fictions on Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions on Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode, Weird World of Animals, I'll be bringing you two stories which give voice to the voiceless. Specifically, a budgerigar and a cow. Both stories were recorded at our live show, Little Fictions at Knox Street Bar, where actors bring stories to life on stage with nothing but the written word and a microphone. Today's first story, Bluey and Myrtle, is published in the Spineless Wonders anthology, The Great Unknown, a book edited by Angela Mayer, who is a huge fan of the TV series, The Twilight Zone. You'll find many of the somewhat surreal elements of The Twilight Zone, In the story you're about to hear, which is written by Blue Mountains author Marco Flynn. Bluey and Myrtle is performed by Nick Radonoff.
1: Who's a pretty boy then? Who's a pretty boy then? Give us a kiss. Give us a kiss. Who's a pretty boy? I'm the pretty boy. No one else? Pretty bluey? Me? Who's been making a great big mess? That's going too far. Yeah, I repudiate that. Myrtle. Myrtle's eyes, vast and roomy behind her glasses. She places a sunflower seed between her lips and presses her face up against the wires of the cage. Her lips make a plastic smooching noise, pursed around the seed like an anus. Pretty Bluey knows all about simile and metaphor. I used to read the newspapers spread out on the table below over the shoulder of the old fellow. He was a great one for the crosswords. She expects me to bounce on my perch, bob my head and take the seed from between her lips. I do. It's a kind of frigid, bestial kiss. This is morning. She scratches the sear of my beak with a fingernail. I hold the seed in my claw and examine it. I crack it open and nibble the kernel, stale. What does she expect a thank you? Give us a kiss, she says. Give us a kiss, I reply. It's echolalia. She fills my seed tray and water bowl too, her giant hands squeezing in through the tiny gate. I grip the dowel rod of the perch as the cage rocks. My mirror and bell swing wildly on their chain. Doesn't Bluey like his breakfast, Myrtle says. I squawk rudely. The bouncing sun dazzles my eyes at random moments. She doesn't understand. Each morning when the cover is removed, the sudden galaxy of the kitchen is a shock to my delicate system. Myrtle, put the cover back on. Go back to bed. Just put us both out of our misery. At dusk, she comes to arrange the frilly curtain she made it herself. Over the dome of my cage, it's hardly an aviary although when Twitters was alive, yes, yes, this perch thy centre was, these bars, thy sphere, we'd splash in the dish and flap water out onto the crosswords below. No happier pair of lovebirds could you find of Twitters. She used to let us out one at a time to flutter about the wide-open skies of the kitchen, perch on the curtain rods or else on a finger. If only she'd let us both out at once. Escape might have been feasible. Quickly, Alf, shut the door. Oh, Jesus, they're loose. Only one is loose. I'm training them. What for, combat? What a terrible glimpse of freedom that was. A chasm of possibility. Did Twitters it? For one to leave the other and cross the threshold... We returned dutifully to our coop, wing muscles stiffening after exercise, glad it must be said to be home. Until that tragic day, I woke up to find Twitters had dropped off his perch. I'll never forget poor Myrtle's face when she came to remove the cover and saw my love cold on the floor, his claws gripped as if around a seed. She nearly had a fit. Eighteen across, ten letters, sudden diminution of sensation and voluntary motion, what could that be? Pencil scratching at the temple. Apoplectic. No other word for it, poor duck. From that day on I took it on myself to rid the cage of every death-infected scrap of sawdust that she persists in shoveling into my habitat. Who's a pretty boy then? Her great nude irises paling with age. Come on, Bluey, who's a pretty boy then? I take my head from under my wing, make the reply, whistles, squawk and chirrup. Who's been making a great big mess then? A great big mess. She fetches the dustpan and brush from beneath the sink and sweeps up the contaminated shavings. I must say that I rather like the look of the flakes as they float gently down through the moonlight and the breast feathers I've torn out with my own beak and tossed overboard. I am the life-giving pelican, drawing its own blood to feed its young. But there are no young. There is no one. I watch Myrtle and her rituals. She takes the kettle off the stove and fills the teapot, twirls it three times, the milk, the strainer, the careful pouring. It took her a long time to learn she only needed one cup. Chirp, 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 I'm here too. Without each other, old girl, where are we? She seems distracted this morning. Instead of putting the kettle back on the stove, she puffs out the flame like a candle, puts the kettle on the table. The milk bottle goes in the cupboard. That look on her face, she's trying to remember something. Someone's birthday? Who's gonna be? I gaze down on her grey curls. Myrtle. Myrtle. I want to shriek. Let's set aside this grieving we've both grown so accustomed to. The bald and bleeding patch on my breast throbs where I've dug out the roots of my quills. Something in my whistle alerts her. Despair, perhaps. She comes to stare through the wire, the fading cerulean blue of her eyes. Myrtle presses her lips to the bars, her face is near. Who's a pretty boy? Squawk? Twitters. Twitters was the pretty boy. A downright flirt. wonder if I have time to peck out an eye. No, she's fast for an old duck. Her tea, her breakfast, her washing up. I can't go on, so I suppose I'll go on. "'Oh, my goodness, Bluey, you haven't had your muesli.' "'I have, Myrtle, I have. Don't you remember?' "'She'll forget me altogether one day, "'just as she's forgotten to turn the gas off. "'Listen, hissing steadily from the ring, chirp.' "'She calls the mishmash. She calls me muesli. "'The old fellow used to laugh at that. "'She balks when she sees that my tray is already full. "'How dear,' she says. "'Aren't you hungry?' "'No, I'm not hungry.' The open gate is a guillotine. Stop it up by her hand. She takes out the still full dish and replaces it with another full dish. Now, Bluey, what was I looking for? I suppose I'll remember when I find it. Myrtle turns back to the sink. The gate is open, stuck at the top. The kitchen is frightening enough. I could casually flop down from my perch, peck at the seed as on any normal morning, give a spontaneous gargle of song before tugging down on the gate as Twitters used to do when Myrtle forgot to close it, so we were safe again. I call out. Myrtle? Myrtle shut the gate? I could say anything, she wouldn't hear. She's busy doing the dishes, humming, she's forgotten me. There's a whole day to get through, but there's something about this morning, something about the fundamental limitations of language as a means of communication between two sentient beings. Myrtle the turtle, I squawk. You've left the gas on. betweet I smell the gas rising, thick and fast. It won't be long now, Twitters, I suppose. Like me, she has her own memories of the old fellow. The look on her face when she came in to find him on the kitchen floor beneath us. The new bulb in his hand, the step ladder on its side, sparks everywhere. I'm usually that day, I can tell you nor a year later when Twitter's was removed in a tissue, in a tissue, for God's sake. Christ, I don't know what happened after that. Nope. It's Myrtle and me. And she's left the gas on. And the trapdoor open. The stove hissing softly in the corner like a bronchial lung. I hop down from my perch, ruffle my wings, scratch myself. Who's a pretty boy then? Who's a pretty boy then? I answer. I am Myrtle. I am. She doesn't skip a beat. Dish, fork, plate, knife, spoon, bowl. And who's made a great big mess then? I did, Myrtle, I did. I nibble the seed, I stretch my otios wings. They make a noise like flags on a windy day. Small flags, I admit, flapping in the winds of destiny. I see the open window beyond the open cage. Myrtle is humming. A bee in her bonnet that she doesn't know is there. Dish, fork, plate, knife, spoon, bowl. She's washing the same cutlery that she's washed already. I stand beneath the rusted door. I will it to drop, but it's not heavy and would probably only give me a clonk on the beak. Fate is beckoning. Or is it opportunity? I take off. Freedom! Flap, flap, flap. Oh, Bluey! Come back, Bluey! Myrtle squawks, dropping the dish rag. I circumnavigate the airspace of the kitchen... Cheap Come back, you naughty bird I buzz the kitchen, strafe the dishes, the gas is thicker up near the ceiling, plenty of dust up here on the cupboards where she can't reach any more. I soar, I glide, I loop the loop, my stunted wings clip the hot Osram in the socket of the ceiling. It must be loose, for surprisingly it plummets to the floor. Newton's light bulb down, down, shatters on the lino, with a soft pop making Myrtle jump. Thin slivers of glass like fish scales scatter under the fridge and stove. The room darkens appreciatively. I swoop. Come back, Bluey! Not in your life, I'm free. But tweet-tweet. What does she want? You give a chap language and then expect subservience. God did not decree that consciousness be solely of the human sphere. Anthropoavian. Surely that's a crossword clue. Oh, Bluey, what a mess. You bet, sister. I swoop again. I chirp my heart out. I am faced with the open window or the empty cage. So often I really get to think about these paradoxes, about where I belong. Where the light bulb has fallen from the ceiling, the socket is open and exposed. The switch by the door is still on, as it was when the old fellow was still with us. He wouldn't listen when Twitters warned him to dry his hands first, cause and effect. First law of electrical conductivity. I'm coming, Twitters. The temptation is too great. I swoop, I soar, a phoenix risen from the sawdust, blaze of glory, sparks everywhere, socket open up. Through the gas I rise on eagle's wings unto the flowering hypothesis of heaven.
0: That was Bluey and Myrtle by Marco Flynn, performed by Nick Radunoff. The next story, A Cow Like Alice, also includes a talking animal. I recently spoke with Sydney author Julie Chevalier about her story, where the idea for it came from and about her writing process. I'll let Julie introduce the story to you.
2: It's a woman driving um, through the Barclay Tableland with two blokes asleep in the back of the van and they're worn out. They've been trying to make 700 kilometres a day to get the sun back to start uni. And suddenly there's a cow sitting in the front seat next
3: to her. This morning, it's my turn to choose the music. I've been driving since we left the Barclay Highway. My best blokes are stretched out on a mattress, snoring in the back of the van. Numbers are running through my mind. How many Ks per hour? How many Ks per day? How many Ks per liter? Do we have enough petrol to get to the next pump? My number tumbling is interrupted by a road train approaching out of the low sun. I slow, brace myself, and run the left wheels onto the dirt. I'm straddling the apron or shoulder or whatever overly domestic word you call the crumbling surface at the edge of the Lansborough Highway giving the chrome monster lots of space. Our high-ace shudders. The blokes in the back, one sprawled on the seat, the other on a mattress on the floor, grunt and turn, are quiet again. I manoeuvre the wheels back on the highway in time to avoid the roadkill. A cow, already swollen. I try not to look, but what else is there to look at? The next one hangs in tatters from scaffolds of bone. The big rigs never lose their war with cattle, marsupials and birds. Benzodiazepam, patron saint of the long-haul driver. He cushions the truckers' rattled spines. Benzo would be Pope if they had one. I swerve to avoid a kangaroo carcass. Scavengers wait until the last second to rise over the van, guts dropping from their bills. Swarms of flies and God knows what else. Thank goodness for windshield wipers. The headlights when they scrub before dark. Mirages shimmer in distant waves. The front seat gets hotter as the sun gets higher. I keep the aircon on and the windows closed to keep out the dust. But a small cow, radiating heat, has appeared in the seat on my left. She turns to look at me. (laughs) Alice, she says. Hi, Alice. (laughs) The seat of the van is back as far as it can go. When I brush against her, her coat feels as rusty as it looks, like wire. She thanks me as though I stopped to pick her up, her breath hot and grassy. I shoo the flies away and with new cow consciousness realise I don't know a heifer from a steer, a milk cow from a meat cow. You know those pretty cows on the milk cartons, chalky white with black spots standing on emerald slopes? Alice in no way resembles them. She's an eye-rollingly serious number. Brown, strong, tough and curly. I relax a bit when she hums along to Kate Bush's song about the big sky. (laughs) She braces her front legs against the dashboard each time a road train comes roaring toward us. Although her weight slows us down, it doesn't prevent the van wobbling each time a road train passes. An aerial photo would show a horizontal tornado with an enormous black road train inside it, subsuming a white van and its pathetic dust trail. Our windscreen and dashboard are covered with what looks like paprika past its use-by date. I turn on the wipers and swipe at the inside of the windshield with an old T-shirt. When I blow my nose, the tissue turns vermilion. For over a week, we'd camped around Alice Springs, where floods had flattened the vegetation in creek beds and produced so many wildflowers that lorikeets, drunk on nectar, flew in waves. I tell Alice about the Aboriginal figures on rock walls at Emily's Gap that looked like vertical strips of bacon. How I felt like the boss of the corroboree, sitting on a rock throne in a cave high up serpentine rock. I placed my hands on rock armrests worn shiny by some patriarch. Found the metre-long thin hole where he kept his power. So scary I climbed down the rock quicker than I'd climbed up. Later, I took photos of my men posing with the devil's marbles. In Tennant Creek, we saw the electrician walking to the pub in basketball sneakers and a tutu. That was before we started running short of time and found it quicker to stay in metal cabins behind pubs and pitch a tent. The blokes are awake. I introduce Alice to Davo and my son, Tom, whose uni course resumes next week. Alice joined us about 100k back, I say. Time for a stop. A lukewarm sprite for me, lukewarm cold ones for the men. Alice gets out, slowly. She can hardly straighten her legs to piss on the tough grass on the verge. I pour water into a bowl for her, take the keys from the pocket of my jeans and toss them to Tom. We hurry back into the van at the first puff of red dust. Another black behemoth is heading toward us. Davo and I slip into the back seat, slide the door shut just before we are engulfed in dust. I hear Alice asking Tom if he has younger brothers and sisters at home. (laughs) On one side of the so-called highway, the belly of a cow is swollen like a full-term pregnancy, legs stuck out like a table that's been knocked over during a brawl. On the other side, a majestic skull, dry and white, the highway abattoir solar crematorium fertilizer factory Alice points out the first tombstone Bessie 2012 to 2013 R.I.P. just a calf oh my god veal after that we see memorials to Bree Daisy Dulcie Elma Elsie Homer Jace Kylie Pearly, Pops, Ruby and Tallahassee. I want to stencil the license plate of the murderer on each tombstone. I imagine I'm back in my studio, jigsawing marine ply to make life-sized silhouettes of cattle to stand as sentinels on the verges. In my head, I make maquettes of them and apply for an OSCO grant to make an installation. (laughs) Sheet metal will rust and flake until it decomposes into dry blood, the colour of the country. It's Saturday at dusk when Davo points out the packed utes from the surrounding stations, all heading toward the same roadhouse. Cold beer, live music, maybe dancing. We need a break from travelling. Alice wants us to book adjacent campsites rather than stay in the bunkhouse with the jackaroos, truckies and cyclists. The best option for dinner, she suggests, is salads from the bistro. You are vegetarians, aren't you? Less than a fortnight ago, we were forced to tip our crates of fruit and veggies into the bin at the Tick Gate near Port Pirie, so we tried, but this trip, no, we aren't. We are desperate for fresh fruit and vegetables. In the bistro, six big aluminium bowls contain variations of three-bean salad made from tinned ingredients. Don't eat the meat and don't drink the milk, she tells us. You have no idea. The salads taste like tin. Although it's far from cold, there's a log fire for cowboy ambience. I stare into it, mesmerised. Plaster seems to cling to wire armature. The rough skeleton of a scrawny cow. Above the crackles and hisses of branches breaking and moisture boiling out of the wood, I can hear the hiss of skin sagging. Clouds shroud the starless sky. In bed, In the van, I listen for bovine snoring to be sure Alice is not being minced into hamburgers or roadkill. (laughs) By sunrise, we're eating cold cereal and repacking the van. To get back to Sydney for the beginning of Tom's uni-turn, we need to average almost 700 Ks per day. Alice thanks us for the muesli, water and holiday and asks Davo, who is driving first, to drop her off at the first dam on the left. The calves' road safety lessons begin on Monday. That was
0: Little Fiction's regular, Eleni Schumacher, performing Julie Chevalier's A Cow Like Alice. I caught up with Julie recently to ask her about her writing. Here's what she had to say. So we are going to be talking about A Cow Like Alice. So it's a quirky story. but Quirky. But at its heart I think is kind of quite a serious message there around, you know, humans and animals and how we value animal life. Was that uh, intentional when you wrote the piece or was it something that kind of just emerged out of the story? I love this question. Um,
2: I was doing a writing exercise with another writer And we opened a book called The 4 a.m. Breakthrough by Brian Kightley. And the exercise, number five, said the letter A. Mm -hmm. Write a story about an ox or a cow. Make the title of the piece one word which begins with the letter A. Then choose 20 words that begin with the letter A. That's how the story began. I just panicked. I thought... A story about a cow or an ox. I mean, I'm a city person. I don't even see cows or oxen. And I've tried to think of where in my life I had encountered a cow. And I thought about all the wildlife I'd seen dead in when I was driving cars, particularly in the Barkley Tableland.
0: I think that's great that it comes from a writing exercise. It's pretty extraordinary driving through that country. I've done it a couple of times myself um, and I love hearing your reaction is to commemorate it I think my connection was just a bit more of oh gosh um, in a way it's really good to be reminded of the realness of death you know and that we are living in a city that's so sanitized and and I'm a meat eater but it's you know my eating of meat is so divorced from from the reality I think I really appreciated that process, you know, of seeing all those dead animals in a way. It's a, a really important reminder. Um, but what I love about your story is sort of the normalisation of that cow character. Um, it is very much like you've just picked, it, picked up a hitchhiker. Um, in terms of writing that character, did all of that come out in sort of one flow as a result of the writing exercise or was it a process to kind of normalise it, make it less cow-like? I mean, did it ever occur to you to kind of write a cow? Was it just another person?
2: I remembered the stench of the dead animals and I remembered the pulling over each time there was a road train going by. I remembered the insects. And when I pictured the cow sitting next to me, I thought it's not one of those nice cows that you see on the picture on the side of a milk carton. It, it was very rusty and very dry and very dusty and very dirty and its hair was coarse. Hmm. And I know nothing about cows. I don't know a meat cow from a, a milk cow. I don't know a heifer from a steer. I don't know anything. I've had no, I've never touched a cow
0: in my life. So it was all imagination. Mm-hmm. And and based on what you'd witnessed, I guess, on that trip as well, I mean, you're drawing on that. Did it, um, just to kind of give um, listeners a sense of, of what your writing process is, how long did it take you to write that story, A Cow Like Alice?
2: I don't remember the length. Specific stories take, but I did cross off three words this morning. <laughs> I normally normally it would take me, say six months to get
0: a story into an almost finished shape. Mm-hmm. And um, is that uh, due to a lot of rewriting or yeah, constant
2: yeah. rewriting, constant experimentation? I often write things from dif- different points of view, from different char- um from different, ten- in different tenses, in different times. And so it might be mm. set in the past, set in the present, set in the future, might be told by um, a first person voice, I, or a second person voice, you, third person, he. Um, I've shipped things around a lot. I often start off a story told by a woman and it ends up
0: being told by a man. So many thanks, Julie Chevalier, for joining us today to have a chat about your process. Permission to Lie, a collection of short stories and microfiction, is available from publisher Spineless Wonders. For more information, you can go to the Spineless Wonders website, www.shortaustralianstories.com.au. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Ella. It's been lovely to be here. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening and do drop us a line with any feedback about our show at the 2RPH website or their Facebook page. Today's episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bromwyn Meehan and our sound engineer was Adrian Vecchio-Erner. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me next time for more Little Fictions on Air.